I'm so glad that we're finally having a conversation about this again. You know, too often our narrative set, the majority of the population simply just buys it and runs with it, and then the media circus, the news cycle, moves away, and it's simply a story of the past forgotten in time. Well, you know, maybe sometimes it's a good idea that we revisit things, that we go back a little bit and ask ourselves a very important question, did we get it right? Because in some cases, the ramifications can be pretty extreme. And in this case, we're talking about people's lives. One man, Derek Chauvin, was pretty much sent away for life, with one other officer who was simply present on the scene during the day being sentenced to five years alongside him. Maybe, just maybe, we should be asking questions, did we get it right? Tucker Carlson, with his latest segment on X, asks that exact question. Let's take a look and have a conversation. We've got some stuff to get into, so let's roll the tape. All right, folks, so Tucker Carlson breaks the internet, reviving the topic. It could be time to revisit some of the other slogans we've been assured are true and ordered to repeat. Are they in fact true? Did, for example, a racist white cop actually murder a man called George Floyd, a civil rights leader, in Minneapolis on Memorial Day of 2020? Now, we've been told that that happened, told it relentlessly for more than three years. So at this point, we've been told it so much that pretty much everybody seems to believe it. And because everyone does kind of believe it, a small group of people has been allowed to make massive changes to American society. They include, but are not limited to, decriminalizing stealing, defunding the police, adding a new federal holiday to the calendar called Juneteenth, the ceasing of hiring all white men in corporate America, and of course, significantly, they also sent a cop called Derek Chauvin to prison for more than 40 years. He would be the racist white devil who murdered George Floyd. But the question is, did he actually murder George Floyd? And the answer is, well, no, he didn't murder George Floyd. And we're not guessing about that. We know it conclusively, thanks to a new court case now underway in Hennepin County, Minnesota. The case was brought by a prosecutor there called Amy Sweezy. She's suing her boss. So the case is not actually about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin, but it tells you an awful lot about both of them. In her deposition, which you should read, Amy Sweezy describes a conversation that she had with the county medical examiner, Andrew Baker, right after George Floyd died. Quote, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. Sweezy recalls all this under oath in the deposition. Quote, he called me later in the day on that Tuesday, and he told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Oh. In other words, George Floyd, according to the official autopsy, was not murdered. He died instead of what we used to call natural causes, which in his case would include decades of drug use, as well as the fatal concentration of fentanyl that was in his system on his final day. So this was not a killing. It was yet another narcotics OD in a country that courts more than 100,000 of them every year. The medical examiner clearly understood that and in fact articulated it. And Sweezy explains. He said to me, she recalls in the deposition, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, quote, this is the kind of case that ends careers. In other words, Everyone lied about it from the very beginning. The people who knew the truth hid the truth and allowed the revolution to proceed. Now they've been exposed. Now we know the truth. What happens next? Well, they're going to ignore it. The Biden administration just issued a long purple statement celebrating George Floyd's birthday. He's a martyr. Despite the fact we know that he was not murdered. And by the way, Derek Chauvin is still languishing in jail for the rest of his life. Why is it always an only Tucker who seems to be the only one with the balls to ask these kinds of questions? Every other mainstream drone continues to remain silent. It's an absolute disgrace considering somebody's life is on the line. Somebody who is possibly innocent. And yes, that is a real concern. That's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not making that statement because I'm a racist. Not at all. It's just that, you know, this document kind of exists. This is an official George Floyd autopsy. Quote, no life-threatening injuries identified. No facial, oral mucosal, or, I'm gonna butcher this, conjunctival pedicie. Please don't laugh at me, I didn't go to med school. No injuries of anterior muscles of neck or laryngeal structures. No scalp soft tissue 
skull or brain injuries, no chest wall soft tissue injuries, rib fractures, other than a single rib fracture from CPR, vertebral column injuries or visceral injuries, incision and subcutaneous dissection of posterior and lateral neck, shoulders, back, flanks, and buttocks negative for occult trauma. Then on the toxicology report, blood drug and novel psychoactive substances screen. Fentanyl, 11 nanograms per milliliter. Norfentanyl, 5.6 nanograms per milliliter. As well as 19 nanograms per milliliters of methamphetamine. The guy was literally on a deadly fentanyl dose. A deathly cocktail of substances. Based on very basic research, you'll find this exact number online everywhere. Quote, the estimated lethal dose of fentanyl in humans is 2 milligrams. George Floyd had five times the average lethal dose in his system. And anybody who understands what a fentanyl or an opiate overdose is, you essentially stop breathing and die of suffocation. You know, shouldn't we be asking these questions? Shouldn't we be a little bit curious? Now, of course, there were two conflicting autopsies. But again, shouldn't we be asking the question, where did this come from? Why was one autopsy prioritized over the other? And just considering the fact that this guy had 11 nanograms of fentanyl in his bloodstream, just based on that alone, don't you think that there's a little bit of doubt as to what was the actual cause of this individual's demise? It's not like I have a horse in this race. It's not like I have any personal interest or personal connection to Derek Chauvin or the individuals around him. But I just can't seem to understand considering all the facts that came to light regarding this case, not to mention the video evidence, which spawns so many other questions, like the placement of Derek Chauvin's knee. It never actually seemed like his knee was ever on George Floyd's neck, but rather on his back or his shoulder blade. Some of the quotes and some of the things that George Floyd was saying before Derek Chauvin even had him on the ground. You know, major question marks, major issues that bring in a whole lot of confusion. I don't understand, considering everything that we saw, and considering this deadly cocktail of extremely powerful substances, how a jury could have possibly come to a unanimous decision in reaching a verdict of guilty in this case. Intentional homicide, as if the intention was to take his life. Not manslaughter, but rather murder. It's incredibly confusing. And again, the point that I was making is that I don't have a personal connection to Derek Chauvin, but I do have a personal connection to, I don't know, the truth? Or not finding somebody guilty and sending them essentially to life in prison when there's such a major red flag in the case. Just the fact that George Floyd had fentanyl in his system in the first place, in my opinion, is enough to throw the facts of this case in the air entirely. And I think about this case constantly. In fact, not too long ago, maybe a week, a week and a half ago, I tweeted this. I released this on the 12th of October. I still can't wrap my head around the whole George Floyd thing. This was before Tucker Carlson's X segment. I think about it all the time and it's confusing to me why other people don't. Politics and narrative farming, in this particular instance, seems to have taken precedence above basic curiosity for the truth. That's what I find so odd. You know, it's not a political stance. It's a simple question, did we get this one right? Or is it possible that an innocent man is now rotting behind bars unjustly for the sole purpose of supposed police reform and demonizing police officers trying to do their job? Well, like usual on videos like this, I'm curious what your opinion is. Let me know what you think in the comments section, and if you enjoyed the video, make sure to leave a like and subscribe to the channel if you feel like it. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the next one. This is what's going on, folks, at home. If you're trying to figure this out, if you're scratching your heads, you're seeing the video, you see droves of people, 2.4 million people coming over the border illegally, the president allowing, the Democrats in charge of Congress are allowing it. The deal is they're going to turn them into voters. You just heard it. They don't have any problem with that. They celebrate it. Here's the deal. We have a problem with it. The Constitution has a problem with it. American elections should be decided by American citizens. When the president delivers the copies to those top legal officers, the two top legislative officers in that right. co-equal branch of government, those are the official documents of the House. And if you tear those up, you violated a specific statute in the criminal code. It is absolutely nightmarish and surreal to hear the description of what these people are doing to the bodies of young children. Joseph Biden has engaged in bribery schemes, pay-to-play schemes. And then Article 2, Section 4 says the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. But we have to acknowledge that the federal government is way too big. 
And it does way too many things. And very little of what it does does it do well. And that consolidation of power has become really very dangerous. It's created an administrative state that is out of control. You don't like his political positions? Great. But you can't impeach a president because you don't like him. That's not how this system works. You don't get the right to do that. The people of this country do. We live in a republic. I'm just sick of this. I yield back. Secretary Mayorkas, we have the frustrating responsibility on this committee of providing oversight of your agency. But I have to be honest and tell you, I'm not sure exactly what you do at the Department of Homeland Security other than great harm. On your watch, the data is pretty clear. We've had record levels of illegal immigration, a rapid decline in deportations, skyrocketing fentanyl deaths across our country. And the Secret Service, which is a DHS component, can't determine who left cocaine at the White House. We stand at a very dangerous time. I'm stating the obvious. We all know that. The world is in turmoil. But a strong America is good for the entire world. The Speaker of the House has been chosen. Mr. Reagan. All right, so the Speaker of the House has finally been chosen. Mike Johnson. But who the heck is Mike Johnson? The primary criteria that conservative Americans have for Speaker of the House is that the Speaker of the House is not controlled by the deep state. That he is a true patriot. That he is not there simply to enrich himself. That he is not there to fight for Wall Street, the military-industrial complex, special interest groups, corrupt labor unions, billionaire activists, or other nations, but rather that he is there to fight for the American people. And it looks like we may have found the guy. And his name is Mike Johnson. But again, who the heck is this guy? I'll get into it in one moment. First, I have to sell you something. Do you want to take control of your financial future, but you don't know where to start? Noble Gold Investments understands. Investing in precious metals may sound confusing, but the team at Noble Gold Investments, they make it easy. Let's hear from some actual Noble Gold Investments customers. One customer says, the staff answered all my questions and helped me every step of the way. Another says, no pressure sales tactics, just honest guidance. And finally, securing my future is less stressful thanks to Noble Gold's expertise. So look, don't settle for financial uncertainty. They will suggest options and see if you can diversify into gold and silver. Right now, Noble Gold Investments is offering a free 5-ounce Silver America the Beautiful Bullion coin for qualified accounts. Don't settle for financial uncertainty. Noble Gold Investments has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and countless 5-star reviews. Why wait? Go to noblegoldinvestments.com right now. noblegoldinvestments.com, the only gold company that I trust. Okay, so who the heck is Mike Johnson and why is he so awesome? Now, first of all, this guy fiercely supported Jim Jordan's speakership bid. So these guys seem to be great friends and Jim Jordan will have a lot more influence with Mike Johnson right there in charge. Now, there is a beautiful list that I found, uh, facts about Mike Johnson. This was compiled by the Twitter user Proud American Brat. Uh, I believe her name is Leslie Bless. So thank you, Leslie, for compiling this list. And I will read some of the highlights from that list. He's pro-life. He supported President Trump's executive order prohibiting immigration from seven Muslim countries. He fought for Donald Trump as a member of his legal defense team during both of his impeachment hearings. This guy is a staunch Trump ally. He's married with four children, he's a Christian, and he often leads prayers on the Hill. His mentor is Jim Jordan. He voted for Jim Jordan for speaker. He voted against certifying Joe Biden's election. He has been actively involved with the investigations into Joe Biden, which to me, that is a huge deal. And then beyond this list, uh, I've got a few other highlights here from reporter Simon Atiba. Mike Johnson was a college professor and a conservative talk show host, which is kind of cool. Kind of the same job that I have, almost. He's an attorney with a focus on constitutional law who worked with religious groups, and he served on Trump's first Senate impeachment trial defense team. Mike Johnson sponsored more bills that passed than the average Republican House member. So there you go. That's a, that's a nice little laundry list of bullet points. But you know, even with all of this, there might be a lingering question about Mike Johnson in your mind. And that question is, if Mike Johnson is so great, why would the deep state even allow him to be speaker. Do they know something that we don't? And that is a great question. It's a legitimate question. We don't know a lot about this guy. Honestly, I'd never heard of him before yesterday. Because look, Mike Johnson is not a spotlight guy. He's not a flashy attention seeker. He's not trying to get 
TikTok views or followers on X or Instagram. He's just a low-key lawmaker who seems to quietly believe and fight for all of the right things. And I love that. And you know what? So does everybody else because everybody in Congress seems to love this guy. At least everybody on the right. Monica Crowley drew my attention to something quite cool. She tweeted, The first thing Speaker-designate Mike Johnson did last night was to ask the Republican caucus to pray with him. This is exactly what we need at this exact moment. And I thought that was just awesome. And then, of course, the creme de la creme, Donald Trump endorsed this guy. Mike Johnson's going to do really well. He's popular. He's smart. He's sharp. He's going to be fantastic. I think he's going to be a fantastic speaker. I believe that will happen. We'll see what... You'll let me know when I come out. I'll be out in a couple of hours. And, you know, ordinarily, I just say, okay, if Donald Trump, the guy that I think is you know, the least corrupt person in Washington, D.C. If he likes this guy, then I like this guy. But the problem with quiet politicians is that it's hard to know what's really going on behind the scenes. And so the question still lingers. Why would the deep state let all of their rhino operatives vote for this guy? And of course, Donald Trump has been fooled before. And honestly, I just kind of hate going along with the crowd. You know, I, I hate to just listen to all the other conservatives out there and go, you know what? Yep, that's right. And in fact, I rarely do that. There's always some little thing I disagree with or I'm concerned about. But in this case, you know, guys, I've done the research. I've looked into this guy and there is absolutely nothing that I could find that has raised any red flags. But there is one reason, one reason above all else that I love this guy. The left absolutely hates him. <laughs> Upon hearing the news of Johnson's potential speakership, the delusional girl who proclaimed that every Republican guy secretly wants to date her, AOC, she hyperventilated, as usual, and she tweeted, Introducing extremist GOP speaker nominee Mike Johnson. He was a key architect of the January 6th strategy to overturn the U.S. election. Here he is, leading a crowd that's booing and telling a congressional correspondent to shut up. <laughs> when asking about it. Now, ironically, he had just led that crowd in a prayer, but AOC twisted it into some kind of bizarre socialist fantasy fiction because that's what leftists do. It's not about reality with them. It's about the perception of reality. But the fact that AOC is panicked about Mike Johnson, I mean, that is the best endorsement that this guy could get in my eyes. <laughs> And you know this idea that he was like the key architect of the January 6th strategy to overturn the U.S. election and all that? I've been hearing this on CNN, MSNBC all day long. Like, this is their talking point. Somebody put that out, the DNC, whoever it is that puts that, those talking points out, they put it out. This is what every Democrat is saying right now. So you're going to probably be hearing that a lot. Now, the utterly corrupt and ineffectual deep state hitman, Adam Schiff, wrote, You might be Googling who Mike Johnson is this morning. Let me make it simple. That's my Adam Schiff impression. Johnson is a hard right pro-Trump leading election denier in the House. Sadly, this is what passes for speaker material in the Republican conference. You know, I was wrong about AOC's panicked tweet. This is the best endorsement that Mike Johnson could get. Adam Cryon Q. Kinzinger wrote of Mike Johnson, He led the lawsuit. They've all got the same accent. He led the lawsuit against the election and sparked the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, if Adam Kinzinger hates someone, that what's the opposite of a red flag? Whatever. These are all stellar endorsements for Mike Johnson. Now, presumably after soiling himself, Representative Jared Huffman tweeted, Welcome to the Republican era of not even pretending they aren't forcing their religion on Congress and the American people. This is a slippery, dangerous slope to theocracy. Yeah, how terrifying that a Christian might hold political office in America. You know what? Why are leftists crazy? Leave your thoughts in the comment section below. Now, I couldn't find any reaction from the mega rhino known as Liz Cheney, but I did find this tweet from some TDS-infected leftist called Brian Allen. He, he tweeted, The Republicans are voting to elect Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson holds a 6 out of 6 rating on the insurrection scorecard. Liz Cheney labels him as extraordinarily destructive, a claim worth heeding. Johnson orchestrated the insurrection block, acting not merely as a figurehead, but also as a proficient yet radical litigator and organizer. His presence is genuinely alarming, emphasizing the high stakes involved. Cry more, loser. 
Mike Levin tweeted, As House Republicans support Mike Johnson today, we must spread the word about his extremism. Johnson has been called Trump's perfect speaker. After his efforts to help overturn the 2020 election, we must take back the House next year. Everything is at stake. Why do they all sound like that? Why do all, why do all male Democrats have that voice? Weird. The Twitter user American Atheists wrote, Mike Johnson is a former attorney and spokesperson for the Christian nationalist group... <laughs> Christian nationalists, okay. Alliance Defending Freedom. He was given an award by the anti-LGBTQ and Christian supremacist hate group <laughs> Family Research Council. I <laughs> These people are so, like, crazy. And they, they, they go on and say, he has defended coercive teacher-led school prayer. Yeah, yeah, go, go back again. Teacher-led school prayer. Oh, how horrible of this guy. You know what? This last one, I think this is my favorite endorsement of all. If the atheists hate you for being too Christian, you got to be doing something right. And look, there are countless other crazy tweets like these. They're panicked, hateful tweets. MSNBC, CNN, these guys are going crazy right now. They're screaming about how evil Mike Johnson is. His hardline position against trans care, hardline position on LGBTQ plus rights, hardline position on abortion, and certainly the votes that we've seen him take uh, going against shutting down the government as recently as four weeks ago, they are things that put him in line with the more conservative parts of this conference. One person with a Democratic advocacy group, Human Rights Campaign, described him to me as Jim Jordan with a jacket and a smile. He was one of the leaders in decertifying the election results. It was his strategy, and he was the chief whip for Donald Trump in getting Republicans uh, to sign on to this absurd lawsuit. Earth 2 has a new mayor. House Republicans have finally elected a speaker. The man they picked to be their leader was a critical architect of the legal and policy pieces that made up the coup plot. The New York Times once called him, quote, the most important architect of the Electoral College objections that were raised even after the deadly violence of January 6 imperiled their own lives. His record led the bulwark today to say he has a, quote, coup on his resume. If the, if the Republican drive to end democracy is a play in four acts, this has to be one of them. You know, there's just nothing here that is about governing. The person who's third in line to the presidency doesn't believe the current president is legally elected. So doesn't believe we live in a democracy and believes that we live in an occupied country. That's kind of difficult to wrap your mind around. He's someone who simply provided some of the attempted rationale for how to overturn an election. Now, I read one report that Mike Johnson got a boost because Donald Trump endorsed him. And Trump seemed to suggest the same thing himself. This time yesterday, nobody was thinking of Mike. And then we put out the word and now he's the Speaker of the House. So I want to just... Uh, Thank all of the supporters that I have, and I want to thank all of the supporters that Mike has. And again, he'll be a great speaker. I think you're going to be very proud of him. Thank you, everybody. But Donald Trump also endorsed Jim Jordan, and yet Republicans of the House would not vote him in. So what the heck happened with Jim Jordan? Well, according to Matt Gates, it was Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy wanted to regain his speakership, and he was trying to block everyone else, anyone else who could possibly get it. The, really, the, the, ch the chapter of this that was dispositive, the crescendo, begins as uh, Tom Emmer is withdrawing from the race yesterday. So as Emmer is withdrawing, Mark Molinaro, a moderate New York freshman Republican, stands up at the microphone and says, well, instead of restarting this process and having a candidate forum and sending everybody home for a good cry, let's just take a non-binding poll on where people would be on the person who came in second to Tom Emmer, and that was Mike Johnson. And Elise Stefanik said, well, that's against the rules. The, the rules don't contemplate it. We can't do that. And brilliantly, Mark Molinaro says, then I move for unanimous consent that the rules be waived and we take a poll on whether or not Mike Johnson uh, could be our speaker nominee. And guess who objects to that unanimous consent request? Kevin McCarthy. Who was that? Kevin McCarthy stands up oh, and come interrupts on. and says, I object. <laughs> to doing a roll call on Mike Johnson. And, and here was the thing. It showed everyone that it was actually McCarthy who was working to knife Scalise. It was actually McCarthy who was working to knife Jim Jordan. It was McCarthy working to knife everyone. And he hadn't yet figured out a way to knife Mike Johnson. And so he was worried that there was going to be this great unifying moment. And he scuttled the unifying moment. 
And everyone in the room knew at that moment that I wasn't the force for chaos. I wasn't causing disunity. That for the last three weeks, the reason the House of Representatives has been paralyzed is because for his own selfish gain, Kevin McCarthy was sabotaging the candidacy of anyone else because he was plotting a return. So that's the truth right there. Matt Gates gave us the inside scoop. And this is actually incredible, guys, because after the Jim Jordan vote, I was kind of irate. I was thinking... What the hell is wrong with these Republicans? These guys are clearly exposing themselves as deep state stooges. But you know what? Maybe not. Maybe they're just McCarthy loyalists. And look, I I do believe that some Republican lawmakers are compromised. I do think that some of them are beholden to the deep state. However, maybe it's not as bad as we think. The six core Republican Never Jordans who really derailed Jim Jordan's possible speakership are Ken Buck, Don Bacon, Carlos Jimenez, Mike Lawler, Mario Diaz-Ballart, and Mike Kelly. Now, some of these guys are clearly rhinos. Ken Buck opposes Donald Trump. He defends Joe Biden. He voted to certify Biden's electors. He's positioned himself against January 6th defendants, and he said that he wants to go work for CNN. Okay, Clearly, this guy is a rhino. Don Bacon voted for Biden's BS infrastructure bill. Clearly, a rhino. But then we move on to Mario Diaz-Ballart. And this guy seems to be pretty solidly conservative. So I suspect that he is just a McCarthy loyalist. And then there's Mike Kelly. Mike Kelly also seems like a solid guy. He's a staunch defender of Trump. And I couldn't find a single thing to suggest that he's anything but a loyal conservative patriot. So again... You know, I suspect that he's just a Kevin McCarthy loyalist, which, you know, it's fair enough. So of these guys, it seems to me that some of them are just McCarthy loyalists and some of them are compromised rhinos. But I think maybe that we're sometimes too quick to throw people under the bus and call them rhinos just for one thing that seems suspect. And this is great. You know, this gives me a lot of hope because, you know, maybe things in D.C., at least on the Republican side, Maybe they're more positive than we think. But look, Matt Gates knows a heck of a lot more about this than I do. And if this is more of an internal battle, you know, then that is what it is. And the rhino problem might be, you know, not as much of an issue as we actually uh, tend to think. And, and, and here's why I'm so optimistic. Here's why I have so much hope for the future right now. Because everyone who voted against Jim Jordan, they've all voted for Mike Johnson. They've all voted for Mike Johnson. Right now... I am just cautiously optimistic. Like I said, I believe Mike Johnson is brilliant. And again, the most compelling argument that Mike Johnson is the right man for speaker is that Democrats clearly hate him, which makes me absolutely love him. Well, that's it for me. Don't forget to buy some of my t-shirts and hats and mugs from my Teespring site to support the Mr. Reagan YouTube channel. Let me know what you think about Mike Johnson in the comment section below. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just they know so much that is not so. Good night. You know, someone very profoundly once said many years ago that if fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of liberalism. What is fascism? Fascism is private ownership, but total government control and regulation. Well, isn't this the liberal philosophy? The conservative so-called is the one that says, less government, get off my back, get out of my pocket, and let me have more control of my own destiny. You're seeing all these protesters, even in the Capitol building. And you know what's interesting? We know who they are. Our government knows who they are. The Biden administration knows who they are. I know who they are. I provided the information with various media outlets and various reporters, and they have utterly ignored it. So I'm going to spend my opening talking about who these people are. Are they just happening? Is this just wokeism? No. It's much worse. Believe it or not, we've been infiltrated. We've been infiltrated, the Hamas network in America. And over at George Washington University, they've written all about it. They put a paper out this month. Their program on extremism at George Washington University, the Hamas network in America. The media aren't even looking at this. It's available to everybody. But I want to tell you about it, because that way you'll know about it. In the months following the 1987 formation of Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood branches and offshoots throughout the world activated themselves to assist the newly formed organization, that is Hamas. 
According to international documents released in federal court, in 1988, the head of the Palestine section of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East traveled to the United States, where he met with fellow Muslim brothers to seek their support. The result of the meeting was the formation of the Palestine Committee of the Muslim Brotherhood in America, of course. In October 1992, internal memorandum of the Palestine Committee clearly explained the Muslim Brotherhood's vision of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I quote, Palestine is the one for which Muslim Brotherhood prepared armies made up from the children of Islam and the Arab and Islamic nations to liberate its land from the abomination and the defilement of the children of the Jews. And they watered its pure soil with their honorable blood, which sprouted into a jihad that is continuing until the day of resurrection and provided a zeal without relenting, making the slogan of its children, it is a jihad for victory or martyrdom. The document also called on the committee to work to, quote, increase the financial and moral support for Hamas to fight surrendering solutions. In other words, no peace. And to publicize and focus on the savagery of the Jews. Reflecting the traditional pyramidal structure of brotherhood organizations, stick with me, they're very important. The committee was composed of the heads of three U.S.-based organizations that had been set up to aid Hamas in Palestine. The general purpose, Islamic Association of Palestine, the financial arm represented by the Occupied Land Fund, which later became the Holy Land Foundation, and the United Association for Studies and Research, a think tank. These three organizations, each operating in its field, but all deeply interconnected, constituted the public face here in the United States of the secret structure of the Muslim Brotherhood Hamas in America. They've infiltrated our country, and this is not being discussed in the media at all. Even with people I've shared these documents with, these scholarly documents, this one from George Washington University. Now, there was a meeting in Philadelphia. The members of this committee decided to convene an extraordinary three-day meeting in Philadelphia held at the Marriott Hotel near the city's airport. The closed-door meeting was attended by some 20 top leaders of Hamas support network in the United States. Unbeknownst to the participants, the FBI placed wiretaps into the hotel, taping most of the conversations that took place behind the doors of the hotel's conference room. The transcripts of most conversations were introduced as evidence during the Holy Land Foundation in 1993. Attending the meeting were representatives of the three groups, making up the Palestine Committee. Following a common pattern, most of them were united by blood ties and lived in tight, knit communities such as in Washington and Chicago and Dallas. So here's part of what they were discussing. Faced with two conflicting needs, the participants opted for a two-pronged approach that differentiated between its internal and external strategy. Within the Muslim community, agreed the participants, the committee should maintain its support for Hamas undeterred, engaging in various activities to aid the organization. In the coming stage, they said, the most important thing we can provide is to support jihad in Palestine. I believe it is the only way if we want to bring the goals of the Oslo Peace Accords, in other words, to destroy them. Fundraising among local Muslim communities was immediately identified as one of the key activities the group should have engaged in. The newly created Holy Land Foundation, in fact, was to collect funds for Hamas while giving the impression that it was destining them to orphans and needy children. Well, of course. At the same time, argued meeting participants, the committee should have engaged in an extensive effort to educate the American Muslim community, convincing them that the peace accords harmed the Palestinians and that Hamas was the only force worth supporting. Several participants argued that the committee should have been particularly active in spreading this message among the youth. They said, we don't want the children of the American Muslim community who are raised here in schools and in Islamic schools and non-Islamic schools to grow up surrendering to the issue of peace with the Jews. I mean, we don't see in 10 years the growing generation in America surrendering to peace with the Jews. Therefore, there must be curriculum and teaching materials which spread in Islamic schools and in weekend schools. Another speaker argued that the committee should have used the annual conference and the network of Islamic schools run by affiliated organizations to disseminate books and introduce speakers who could raise awareness over the need to support Hamas happening right in our country right now. Has been happening for decades. 
If the internal strategy of the committee aimed at mobilizing the American Muslim community to support Hamas, meeting participants understood that they could also play an important role in aiding the group by influencing American public opinion and policymakers, and that would include the press. Ahmed, in particular, stressed the need to increase the committee's influence with Congress. This can be achieved by infiltrating the American media outlets, universities, research centers, he said. It's also achieved by working with Islamic political organizations and the sympathetic ones such as the American Muslim Alliance, such as the United Muslims of America, such as Muslim Public Affairs Council. If Muslims engage in political activism in America and started to be concerned with Congress and public relations, we will have an entry point to use them to pressure Congress and the decision makers in America. You see that happening all over. You see it with Talib and the squad. You see it with soft support for American policy. And by the way, all these groups hate America, want to take America down, and I have no doubt we're involved in the 2020 riots. The development of a carefully crafted media strategy defending Hamas without giving the impression of supporting violence was deemed to be one of the most important aspects of the committee's public relations campaign. Ahmed spoke of the need of broadcasting the Islamic point of view in U.S. media, adding that when Nihad appeared on CNN and talked in the way that he spoke, greatly reduces the severity of allegations of radicalism. The media-savvy Ahwad followed up on Ahmed's words with a presentation on the media strategy, stretching the importance of, quote, training and qualifying individuals in the branches and the communities on media activism through holding special courses on media, highlighting the importance of writing op-eds in prominent American newspapers. Ahwad's strategy has long been heeded by U.S.-based Hamas activists upon the return to the Middle East. In fact, over the past few years, former U.S. Palestinian committee head Musa Abu Mazouk and former UASR director Ahmed Youssef, currently senior political advisor to Palestinian Prime Minister Islami Hanali, have published several editorials in American newspapers. Discussions at the meeting made it clear that participants fully understood that if within the Muslim community they had decided to openly and unabashedly support Hamas when dealing with the general public and policymakers, they needed to take a more nuanced position when dealing with the general American community. And that is exactly what they've done. And the report goes on to explain it. And again, I've shared this with many American uh, reporters and news outlets, and they've completely ignored it. Completely ignored it. They said in order to be able to continue their activities in the United States, the participants agreed that a new organization with no evident ties to Hamas and operating in ways that would made it appear as moderate in the eyes of Americans should have been founded. The amended bylaws of the Palestinian Committee drafted in 1991, and this all gone on in Philadelphia, 19, uh, when they met. It is hoped that it will become an official organization, this group they wanted to form, for political work and its headquarters will be in Washington, God willing, they said. It represents the political aspect to support the cause politically on the American front. Basing their judgment on ample evidence, U.S. authorities believe that organization that they founded to be the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, which was founded in Washington a few months after the Philadelphia meeting. In fact, IAP President Omar Ahmed and Public Relations Director Nihad Awad, both members of the Palestinian Committee, who had attended the Philadelphia meeting, became respectively CARES Chairman Emeritus and Executive Director. So they've infiltrated our country, they've infiltrated our schools, they've infiltrated our media. And they still are. And that's why you see a turn in policy. And they've infiltrated the Democrat Party with Talib and others like her. This is no joke. This is serious. People talk, oh, it's wokeism, or why is this happening? I'm telling you why it's happening. It's being funded by the enemy. It's being funded by terrorists. Now, last week, we talked about the Students for Justice in Palestine. It's, it's, they're not, as they claim, a grassroots student organization. What's going on on our campuses? This is going on on our campuses. It's a terror-affiliated, anti-Semitic network that currently operates with autonomy and impunity on about 300 college campuses. And uh, who supports them? It has been linked to a terror groups. Some have defined it as a campus front for Hamas at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Students for Justice and Peace is a byproduct of the American Muslims for Palestine. You just heard me talk about them. An organization whose leaders were former members of Palestinian Islamist terrorist organizations. 
AMP was founded in 2005 by the former leaders of three organizations, which we already talked about. So they are a front organization to a front organization that is funded by the enemy and has uh, platforms on 300 or more of our universities. Now, you saw these huge numbers of people gather on Capitol Hill in the Kennett office building. And people said, what are this? this is a Jewish group. It's a Jewish group. I provided this information to American journalists as well, and some news completely ignored it. It's the Jewish voice for peace. What's the Jewish voice for peace? Here's the NGO monitor that monitors different uh, non-governmental organizations. And they say, the Jewish voice for peace views itself as, quote-unquote, the Jewish wing of the Palestinian solidarity movement and seeks to end the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem, quote-unquote. It was founded by radical Marxist Jews from our universities, the Jewish Voice for Peace. They've enlisted and recruited a number of people into this organization. And what else? It is part of a network of NGOs that promote artificial and manufactured definitions of, for instance, apartheid to extend the ongoing campaigns that seek to delegitimize and demonize Israel. You hear the squad and others talk about apartheid in Israel. This is where they're getting it from. Here's an example. It supported convicted terrorist Rasmia Odeh during her deportation proceedings from the United States and hosted her. This group hosted her as a featured speaker at the 2017 National Membership Meeting. Rasmia Odeh, a popular front for the liberation of Palestine operative, a terrorist group, was convicted for immigration fraud after concealing her role in two terrorist bombings in Israel. It is designated as a terrorist group by the U.S., the European Union, Canada, and Israel, and Jewish Voice for Peace that was in the Capitol building celebrated and supported her. It's called the Enemy Within. Funded, particularly college, colleges and universities, but not just there. Now, media. This is what we are up against. Here's the problem with the media. Several people in the media have been influenced by these very same organizations in the BBC, in the U.S. media, and so forth. And they always throw out the same thing when you criticize them. Oh, you must be a racist. Or what about free speech? Now you folks know the full story. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News' YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hello there, everybody. Dennis Prager here. So they had a press conference yesterday where members of the world press were invited to see pictures of what Hamas did to Jews on October 7th that had not been released earlier. And I have a report here. That is just worthy of your being aware. If you don't want to know about it, it's because of my old understanding of evil that people don't want to know about it. Evil is not dark. People can look at the dark. Evil is extremely bright. So, there's a reporter who said, I watched Hamas unleash hell from unheard. The footage bore testament to an ancient hatred. So he writes, Agari, this is the, uh, uh, the Israeli who made the presentation, is technically a media mouthpiece, but he veers into rhetoric. Why did they strap GoPros to themselves? Right? 
as I have said, and I'm not the only one, the primary difference between Hamas and the Nazis, since both wish to exterminate the Jews, one of Israel, one of Europe, and, and by the way, largely the same number. The biggest difference is that the Nazis tried to hide what they did, whereas Hamas wants it publicized. The pride they took in it is, uh, and taken it. So why did they strap GoPros to themselves? GoPros are the cameras that video things as, you're, as things are moving. This is uh, what the Israeli press spokesman speaking to the world media said. Why did they call the family of who they murdered? Because they are proud of what they did. They called the family of those they murdered? Were you aware of that? Yeah. What, to tell them we murdered your child? Okay. He continues, rape, where is Islam? Burn, where is Islam? Behead, where is Islam? They killed babies, old people, sick people. We won't allow the world to forget who we are fighting. Hamas wants dead Gazans. You don't take human shields. You don't borrow under hospitals otherwise. This is Hamas, not Palestinians. He steps off the stage. The footage starts. We see several Hamas terrorists sitting on the back of a truck as it enters Israel. They whoop and cheer. They fan into the street, shooting at cars. They drag blood-drenched corpses out of vehicles onto the street. A female body is thrown onto the road. Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! they cry. I am, I realize, watching a montage of atrocity. And it gets worse. A terrified Israeli man in his underpants and his two young children, also in underclothes, run screaming. Thugs clamber down from a lorry and throw a grenade into the cubbyhole where they have taken refuge. The father's body falls onto the ground covered in blood. Terrorists take the two children covered in their father's blood into a room. Daddy's dead, one screams to his brother. It's not a prank. He's really dead. I wish I was dead. I wish I was dead, he screams. Even within the litany of horror I've witnessed in my career, this is horrifyingly unsettling. A new scene depicts a man in a football shirt, lying on the ground covered in blood. He moans in pain. A terrorist picks up a hoe, and starts smashing him over the head, over and over and over again. Allahu Akbar, he screams, over and over and over again. Some audio plays and a translation of the Arabic pops up on the screen as a Hamas terrorist calls his father. Father, I killed ten Jews. Check your WhatsApp. I sent you the photos. Father, I killed ten Jews. I killed ten Jews with my bare hands. Check your WhatsApp, Father. Be proud of me. I'm starting to lose a sense of time. A terrified, handcuffed female hostage is dragged out of a truck amid cheering crowds. We are shown images of the burned babies so small you could cradle them in the crook of your arm. And it's very, very hard to uh, for colleges to condemn the greatest evil at the moment. There's a report out that the student council at Brandeis University. Let's see, where is that? I just had that. 
I mean, the student council at Brandeis University voted 10 to 6 not to condemn Hamas. Brandeis University is the university that years ago rescinded an invitation to Ayan Hirsi Ali to speak about Islam. She's a black Muslim woman, or at least she was raised Muslim, from Somalia, and has devoted her life to protecting women living in the Islamic world. For pro-Israel students at Brandeis University, the two weeks since Hamas attacked Israel had been, at least in part, a period of relief. The campus had not been convulsed by the kind of anti-Israel sentiment that was roiling many others. That changed on Sunday when Brandeis student government voted down a resolution condemning Hamas and calling on the terror group to release all hostages. Only six members of the university's student union voted in student union senate, voted in favor of the resolution while 10 voted against and five abstained. So 15 of the 21 would not vote for the resolution. It's absolutely infuriating, said Stephen Gogan, the Jewish sophomore who resigned from his position in the student government over the vote. The word that comes to mind most is outrage. Well, that's the word that comes to him. The word that comes to me is college. Located just west of Boston, Brandeis was founded in 1948 by the Jewish community and is named after Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish justice to serve in the U.S. Supreme Court. Jewish students make up about a third of undergraduates, giving Brandeis one of the highest concentrations of Jewish students at any college in the country. And their, their students said it could not vote to condemn Hamas. Don't ever laugh at Neville Chamberlain. It's one of the real important lessons to be learned. It cost a lot more for Britain to confront Hitler in 1938 than it costs anybody to make a resolution against Hamas, and we can't even get that done. And President Biden is preoccupied with Islamophobia and Hamas, the the Gazans, which means Hamas, are getting $100 million in aid. Maybe if they would have slaughtered more Jews, they'd have gotten more money. That's a lot of bang for your buck. The biggest feeling I have now and what I think a lot of other Brandeis students are feeling right now is disappointment. All these, my fellow Jews, are disappointed in the left. God, the naivete among so many American Jews about the left. Oh, it's it's painful. In part, it's because a disproportionate number of Jews went to college. We'll be back. (laughs) 